everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ego Check with the DM. I am your host, Michael Mallon, and I'm very excited to be joined by Rachel Cowart, Dr. Rachel Cowart. She is a psychologist and the research director for Take This. She has published numerous articles in peer-reviewed literature, uh, many of which I was going through over the last couple of days to prepare for this interview, so I'm excited about that. She's also written a couple of books, including most recently A Parent's Guide to Video Games, The Essential Guide to Understanding How Video Games Impact Your Child's Physical, Social, and Psychological Well-Being. So mental health and gaming, something that is very near and dear to my heart, have spoken about in the past. So I'm excited to get into this and learn some things. Uh, Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes. How are you doing? I am good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. As we were talking a little bit ahead of time, just, you know, hanging on as my toddler son is, you know, ruling our lives right now and <laughs> doing, doing my best there, doing quite well. Yes, good. It's it's always a struggle with the little ones, but we will push through. We're, we got this. So you have been a psychologist now for five years, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Happy five-year anniversary. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, and going through your resume or CV, if it were, uh, it looks like the influence of gaming into this psychological interest, uh, an interest in mental health, has been present for quite some time, dating back to you know, graduate studies, mm -hmm. which makes me think that gaming's been a part of your life for a long time. How did this all, how did this blend together? When did you start mixing the chocolate and peanut butter in your professional <laughs> life? Yeah. Um, so I have been gaming my whole life. Um, proudly player two. I have an older brother. Um, so we got a Nintendo right when it came out and every other console following. Um, when I went to graduate school for a master's in counseling psychology, I thought I wanted to become a therapist. And my first day of graduate school, I was like, definitely don't want to be a therapist. <laughs> um, I enjoyed the program and I learned a lot, but I knew that I didn't want that to be my day to day. But part of the program was doing therapy. And at the time, this was the height of World of Warcraft. And I was also playing World of Warcraft as a, as a lifelong gamer. And I kept seeing parents coming in saying, I'm concerned that my children are playing World of Warcraft. And at the time, well, it started to make me concerned, first of all, because people kept telling me that. Um, but at the time, there was no research in that area. There was Nick Yee had published just a couple of papers, and that was it. Game studies was not a thing. Um, and that's when I decided, okay, I don't want to do uh, clinical psychology as my day-to-day -day work. Let's pivot to research and let's find some answers to these questions uh, that the parents have about how games are impacting us. Okay. And what did you find out? <laughs> she started researching this. <laughs> yes, I've been researching it for a while. Um, so my main focus has been the social impacts of games. So how yes. games impact our ability to socialize in offline contexts. And like the too long didn't read version is uh, – Basically, the impact of media is negligible. Um, we can talk a bit nuanced about special populations or about specific aspects of socialization that may or may not be um, able to be honed or refined through gameplay, because there is some conversation to have about that. But generally, the impact of games on our ability to socialize is 
neutral. So take so, get, win some, lose some. <laughs> so and you have papers about that have go gone in and and tried to put some data to a lot of the stereotypes that are out there. Yes. That gamers are not very socially competent, that they are perhaps lonely, isolated, unathletic, these kind of general stereotypes that, that you see out there. And what, what you've done in the past is set up studies to say, okay, let's, let's see if this is accurate. Let's mm-hmm. do some research, try to control for things. And it seems like the general consensus from a lot of the papers I've been reading that you've either first author on or are part of the team mm-hmm. is that the research doesn't really demonstrate that. When you Correct. run these studies, it, it seems to be negligible or there's maybe some differences that are not nearly as, quote unquote, interesting as some of the stereotypes right. might have you right. believe. Correct. So um, I published a paper, I published two papers specifically looking at the different aspects of the stereotype. And what you find is between people who play games and people who do not play games, there are not significant differences in terms of the size of their social circle, in terms of how capable they are to socialize, in terms of how much social support they have, or in terms of their general levels of success, whether that's in their job or at um, university. You find some difference in social motivations for play, which I guess is to expect be expected as people who play online tend to be more socially motivated. But in terms of gamers fulfilling that, I like to call it like the South Park stereotype. Everyone knows that South Park episode, surely, where the children um, begin to play online games and become increasingly lazy and isolated and overweight. Um, those stereotypes are not grounded in in reality. And so this the paper I'm holding now, I'm looking at it. So it's from yeah. Cyber Psychology, Behavior, and Social Networking. That is the name of the journal. And the title is, if you want to look at, look this up and have access to you know type of library that would uh, hold this, Unpopular, Overweight, and Socially Inept, Reconsidering the Stereotype of Online Gamers. So it's by you and a couple of other authors from mm-hmm. 2014. And the results indicate that the stereotype of online gamers is not fully supported empirically. Mm-hmm. And that does not seem like the message that is being translated in popular media and even some professional organizations here mm-hmm. in the not so distant past. So I think a lot of those stereotypes and concerns continue to persist. Why do you think that is? Because they're interesting and they're sensationalized and, you know, generally people want a scapegoat or an easy answer to a tough question. So games are a relatively new technology. I say that loosely because it's not they're not actually that new. But in terms of our broad media categories like film, television, you know, video games are kind of the latest and greatest. And that always comes with an element of moral panic of fear of the unknown. What does this technology do? So if you see one overweight person who plays video games, oh, video games must be bad. They must have directly contributed 
to that person's obesity. Or if you hear of one sensationalized story of someone committing a violent crime and they played video games, oh, it must have been the games because this is a new technology we don't understand. And that must be the easy answer to this complex problem. Um, so it's really like bad PR <laughs> is what it is. And it's really hard. It's really hard to break the cycle of stereotypes, just like we see stereotypes of other um, groups of people in society that persist despite the fact that we know they aren't true. And I would say that the counter, I think, that comes from other folks is that that games are maybe problematic, and especially now that games are even, quote-unquote, designed to be addictive, that they're relying ah. on some behavioral mechanisms, some behavioral <laughs> theories to, to suck people in, to mm -hmm. take their time through microtransactions, take their money. And mm -hmm. how do you respond to those, I think, fairly popular arguments that are out there these days? Yeah. Um, okay, so I don't want to come off as, as giving the impression that I believe that everything is candy and rainbows and, and roses and there's sure. nothing to consider, like, because I, I don't want to say that. Um, you're, I'm going to get on my soapbox about the games being designed to be addictive. That is why we're here. <laughs> that really <laughs> grates on me. Okay, so addiction from a clinical perspective comes with a whole host of other connotations. And really what games are is they're designed to be engaging. Do games use intermittent reinforcement to keep players engaged? Absolutely they do because it's intriguing and it's enticing and it's fun and it's rewarding. Well, the whole idea of leveling. There you are, yes. <laughs> right? Um, do games, you know, balance um, how the skill level of the player with the difficulty of the level? Absolutely. Is that to induce a state of flow so people are engaged? Of course it is. Now, to say that that's addicting is an overgeneralization. So an addiction in a clinical sense has a detrimental effect on every aspect of your life for a prolonged period of time. If games were developed to induce that, that would be terrible game design because everyone would be unable to function and buy these games and play these games and perform at work and at home and whatnot. Um, games are designed to be engaging. Games, I do not believe, are designed to be addictive now. If we talk about, again, special populations in which this design may have a negative effect, particularly for certain individuals, sure, absolutely possible, but not as like a global um, effect. It's, so com far, it's complicated. Right? I think it's <laughs> yeah. complicated. And one of the things that I figured we'd get into, and it was interesting timing because the New York Times came out with an article it was either this morning or yesterday. I think it was might have been dated yesterday. That is this long profile about our games, our video games addictive. That's sort of this, I wouldn't say salacious headline, but kind of. It's meant to sort of pull you in. And, you know, I read through the article and I tried to read through it deliberately and come at it with an open mind. And I found myself getting defensive, both as a psychologist and as someone who grew up like yourself with Atari and Nintendo and PC gaming and Xbox and PlayStation. So like I've played games all throughout my life. I've been a psychologist now for about, I don't know, 15 years or so. So there are a lot of things in the article that I found somewhat concerning the way it was presented. And at the same time, I think, well, yeah, I've had patients who mm -hmm. are struggling in some way and one of the manifestations of that is, is how they're using games or they're using games as a coping strategy 
And I see, I see that as a continuum of, you know, uh, those games could be used for maybe some good reasons and maybe some not so good reasons. And like you said, how much is it interfering in, in your life? So I think there's a lot of nuance there. I think there is some complexity to it that I feel like that's not captured when there are these types of articles or when there's a little two minute news blurb on TV, it's, it's more about the stereotypes or here's what we think is happening. So that's the, I feel like the message, the nuance gets lost. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I, you know, in, in undergrad, I had a teacher who really stressed the fact, and it always stuck with me, that humans are cognitive misers. We're lazy thinkers. We want the easy answer. And I think that games have already been pigeonholed as being this kind of destructive media because of the link that they've already been made between um, violent crime and video games. And I feel like this connection with addiction in video games kind of grew out of that sensationalization um, in the media from the advent of like Columbine and, and since on with the, uh, the school shootings. It is a complex issue. Again, I do not want to say that some people aren't using games maladaptively. I believe they are. I believe that some people do have difficulty controlling um, how they're using games in their lives and the role that it plays. But as you mentioned, for some, it is emotional self-medication. And the fact that we are classifying online gaming addiction as an addiction to the media itself is doing a disservice both to the nuance of the science that we have. There's some great research in this area. The Oxford Internet Institute just published some research this week, which is very nuanced and interesting. Does a disservice to that and also does to the disservice to the people who are having difficulty regulating their gaming because for, if you say it's video game addiction and the treatment is what? You send them to a center and you remove the games. Well, maybe you're removing their coping strategy. You're not treating the underlying depression. You're not treating the underlying anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever it might be. Um, you're taking away the coping strategy. And that is, I think, the major problem that scholars in the field have with this video game addiction title that people throw around without – supportive evidence of, hey, maybe there's something about the games themselves. We don't see that in the research. What we see is it's much more likely that it is a coping strategy and taking the games away is taking away something valuable for these individuals. Yeah. I, and I think that's key of and even my clinical work. It's well, what's the function of this exactly. behavior? Exactly. What, what does it do for you? And even thinking ahead to, you know, I mentioned our, our son who's, you know, He's only two and a half now, but he's not too far away from starting to mess around with games on his Kindle and stuff like that. But as he gets older, even though I grew up with games, I'm not going to be someone who's like, oh, they're fine. Like, he can do whatever he wants. Like, I want to know, like, hey, what are you playing? Why are you playing it? What What's kind of the purpose? What do you get out of it? Mm -hmm. And I think those are good questions to ask of, of anyone, really, with any behavior or hobby that they're, they're spending quite a, li a lot of time on. Um, yeah. you know, I even think when I'm meeting with patients talking about like alcohol use or tobacco use or whatever, it's like, well, why do you do that? And it's not just a matter of if they're having problems with it, like, okay, we're going to eliminate it and that's it, you know, wash your hands mm -hmm. of it. It's mm -hmm. like, okay. Well, if you're not going to be playing games or you're not going to be drinking alcohol, then what, like, what are you right. going to do to cope? What are you going to do to deal with some of these underlying issues? Mm-hmm. 
it, but mm-hmm. it seems like it's presented as like, well, if you just stop playing the games, and these symptoms are going to go away. Which I don't think yeah. is based in any kind of reality from any type of research <laughs> that exists. Right, even drawing from other kinds of research, like you said, like other addiction research even. Yeah. yeah. And, and even going back to that Times article, I mean, it's – I encourage folks to read it. It was just published this past week. Um and it's bookended and it's sort of the whole framework is through the, the lens of this one individual who seems to have numerous depressive symptoms and it mm-hmm. seems to come out as a lot of that gets funneled into gaming. There's a lot of time gaming. It interferes with relationships, interferes with work. Eventually his family sends him to a residential treatment program that specializes in, in gaming issues Mm-hmm. which I have thoughts about that. Um, almost as if like, well, that was the only answer mm-hmm. for this problem. Mm-hmm. And I just found the framing of that to be just misleading to the general public. I think there's any number of mental health approaches that could help with someone that might be struggling with games. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I do. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So I, it just, it seems like an attractive narrative, though. It is. And, and, yeah, and it keeps people coming back because this isn't the first – this isn't the first article we've seen with a very similar narrative. Um, and, again, it just reminds me of the video game and violence narrative that still we continue to see. And this is even an older hat, an old hat. Yes. Um, Yeah, that has literally, you know, unlike video game addiction, which is a relatively new field of of research, of rigorous academic research, it's still relatively new. The links between video game and violence, there are literally thousands of studies, and we still see the same narrative, even though it's continually been discredited. So, I mean, I'm I'm not at this point, I'm not really sure what the people who publish these articles, what the intention is. It doesn't seem to be to provide, you know, a level, even amount of information about what we know. It doesn't seem to be for informative reasons. Um, So I'm not sure, really. It's doing a disservice, I think. Well, and it's, I mean, I went to graduate school with one of the folks who was heavily invested in this aggression mm-hmm. or is related to, to video game use or media and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from an academic standpoint, if, if a certain topic is getting published, then let's publish more of that topic. It's kind of good for your career. And there's those factors. Like if something's a hot topic, then sure, they'll publish whatever about mm-hmm. it. Uh, but it's also this idea of correlation does not imply causation where two things might be related, but we don't know which one comes first. Mm -hmm. So are people who act out violently, do they tend to seek out video games or are they playing video games and then they're violent? And I don't think the latter has ever been shown to really be a connection. Um, There is zero connection. Let's be clear. (laughs) Let me be clear. There is zero connection scientifically between violent crime and playing violent video games. Um, it's just an easy, it's just an easy scapegoat. Well, I think that's similar for violent media, and you've had, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of the articles I was looking at kind of reference that mm-hmm. whole 
line of research that if you view uh, violent media through TV or movies, that that is going to influence your behavior to be more violent. And that doesn't hold up either. That does not. And and I want to say I do understand why us as cognitive misers, all humans, make that connection. It does logically. I can see why people would make that connection. Oh, you're playing this game. You're acting the role of the protagonist and they're violent. Maybe that translates. Um, but at a certain point, we have to accept the fact that there have been, you know, thousands of laboratory studies looking at this and at the end of the day, our impact, what impacts our behavior is not our media consumption. It's our, you know, previous exposure to violence. It's our personality factors. It's our frustration tolerance. It's all of these other factors, mm-hmm. um, not not what we're, media we're consuming. And so a way to do this, which I think has been done, and you're more aware of this, this research than I am, is to set up as an experiment to take a large number of people before they're exposed to media or before they're exposed to video games, follow them over time, and half the group is randomized to get, okay, you're going to play video games a lot. You're going to spend a lot of time playing violent video games or just video games in general. The other half, you're not. You're just going to keep doing your thing. And then after three years or five years or ten years, we're going to measure you on different factors to see what are the differences. And then that's an experiment where you can say, okay, games caused X, Y, and Z to happen. And Mm -hmm. have those studies been done and what have they shown? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the best way to kind of encapsulate um, the research that's been done in this area is to look at violent crime rates over the last 20 years. Um, I talk about this in my book, A Parent's Guide to Video Games, but this comes from the work of Chris Ferguson at Stetson University. And there's a nice little chart, and it shows that over the last 20 years, the consumption of violent video games, particularly among youths, so people under the age of 18, has steadily increased. Now, People under the age of 18 are thought to be, one, the people with the most free time to consume this media, and two, um, the most vulnerable to media messages. So if we take this group and we look that their consumption has exponentially increased over the last 20 years, this has corresponded with a steady decrease in violent crime among the same age group. So if the two were related, you would expect both of them to be increasing uh, steadily. And again, this is over 20, 25 years. So – if the effect is happening, it's it, we're not seeing it in, in crime rate statistics. So one of the things that that I think it's such it's an interesting topic because I think there's a lot of ways you can keep kind of talking around and around this, the same things. Um, I, I think it, in my mind, it brings up some of the things that you're trying to do with Take This, where you're trying to educate people in a different way. How did you get involved in that? And can you explain what Take This is for the folks who yeah. listen and don't know about it? Of course. Um, Take This is the first uh, mental health nonprofit to be formed specifically to service the gaming industry and gaming communities. Our goal is to destigmatize mental health challenges, but also to provide information and resources about mental health. Um, I got involved because I was a fan for a really long time and Dr. B is the clinical director and we have been friends for a while. And at one point I was like, look, I feel like you should expand into research. And they were like, actually we are. And I was like, Hey, you know, someone who's really knowledgeable 
somehow research, I should be involved. Um, I'm standing right here. (laughs) Hello. Yeah. Basically, that is kind of how it happened. So I'm very honored to be part of their team. Um, Take This does really amazing work. They run the AFK rooms at different conferences, which are quiet spaces that are staffed by mental health professionals, um, which is great if you're in the hustle and bustle of any kind of very crowded conference. Those AFK rooms are godsend. Um, and we also do a lot of outreach programs and research now and, um, different things like that. Okay. And with the, with the book that's most recent, the parents guide to video games and you being a parent yourself addressing with, you know, your little ones on the times there, like what are going to be your, what's going to be your approach to managing, monitoring, if game use becomes problematic to right. use that word that's out there, I'm not even saying addictive, but like problematic game use. Right. I prefer that. I prefer that. Um, I think my strategy is going to be similar to what you mentioned earlier. Uh, my daughter is four, almost five. She absolutely plays games on her tablet and it's just one of the many things that she does. So she just found Minecraft. <laughs> She's very excited about it. Um, and I can see, you know, that she'll sit and she'll play it for an extended period of time. And then I'll be like, okay, let's put the tablet down and let's go outside because it's beautiful. And she'll be like, no, I don't want to. I want to keep playing Minecraft. And then it's all about boundaries. Okay, you can play Minecraft for another 10 minutes. And then I, I literally just snatch it away <laughs> and we move on and she gets over it. Um So it is just about boundaries. And I feel like for me, my biggest concern, my greatest concern for my children playing games is stranger danger in online spaces. That is really my greatest concern. Um, I think that all parents should be aware what their kids are playing. It should just be one of many things that they do. And it should be at some point, I hope, considered similar to how we monitor television watching or their consumption of movies. I'm not going to let her watch an R-rated movie when she's five years old. And I'm not going to let her play, you know, an M-rated game when she's five years old. Um, And it'll just eventually, I hope, in my lifetime, just become part of just our regular media diet and part of what we talk about, just like any other media. Although I guess, you know, 20 years from now, VR will probably have the same PR problem that games have now. So we'll see how that, how that turns out. It's like that one episode of Wesley just stuck in the holodeck on the Star Trek yeah. generation. <laughs> yeah. It's like they have to pry him out of there. Like, no, come back to reality, which yeah. I mean, those stories exist now where, I mean, it's even referenced in that times article again. It's like, Hey, this person is playing in this online world and they're getting rewards there that they don't get in their real life. And is this a problem? I Potentially. That is the balanced and nuanced answer. Right. Potentially. It could also be fantastic that you can gain a sense of achievement, just like you gain a sense of achievement when your football team wins on Friday night. Right. It's the same. Or having a flower garden or whatever the case may be. Yes. Like um, in the in the article, I don't want to just focus on the article. It's just fresh in my mind. Um, it's very salient. Author, <laughs> it is. The author talks about Stardew Valley. I love Stardew Valley. That is a lovely game. I love seeing my little crops grow and it's and it's great and, and highly rewarding and makes me feel good when I play it. Yeah, you, you did mention the, the social component of mm-hmm. of gaming that certainly is becoming more more advanced over mm-hmm. time where 
seems like any game these days you need a headset because you're communicating with somebody else that's playing mm-hmm. whether like i have nephews and they're like 12 and 11 so whenever they're playing a game it's they're either playing a baseball game or they're talking to a friend that they know from school or they're playing Fortnite with randoms just people yep. that are crowding in so it seems like that's just kind of more baked into the process now where i grew up a lot with more single player games where you know, I've stayed up too late playing Mass Effect and other stuff back in the mm-hmm. day. Um, mm-hmm. But now it does seem like more of a social component. And again, thinking ahead to when my son's like playing a game and has his headphones on, I'm going to be real curious about what is being said mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or what he's saying in those environments. Yeah. I know there can be some pretty toxic behavior on there. Yeah. And I have a daughter. Yeah. Um, that's what, again, I'm going back. I think the social component is the, is the component that the, we, we as parents cannot control. Um, so navigating that is going to be really interesting. Um, I've heard different parenting strategies from different people. One is I make my, my children have the other people's communication come through the speakers. So everyone in the room can hear it. I think that's a pretty good strategy. Um, yeah, I think that is going to be that is going to be the hardest hurdle to navigate, for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. so again. I think it comes back to this nuanced take of games are terrible or they're always great all the time. I think that's yeah. what when we have this conversation, it's like others people listen to it like, oh, well, they're being dismissive or they're not being realistic about these things. Like, no, yeah, certainly games. It's it's a form of entertainment. It's a form of media that could be taken advantage of might be, could be problematic in some ways. Mm-hmm. There are ways to, to manage and treat those symptoms mm-hmm. as opposed to thinking of it as, well, this is a, this is the only cause for yeah. those issues. And I think that this is actually a really good point to make about how it's not all rainbows and, and flowers about toxic gamer cultures. Yeah. I mean, Let's be honest. There are a lot of toxic gamer cultures. There's harassment. There's doxing. There's all kinds of things happening online um, and specifically in gaming communities. And they can have long-term detrimental effects. People have developed post-traumatic stress disorder from the amount of harassment that they have received through games and online. So games aren't all perfect. <laughs> We're definitely not on that, on that bandwagon. Um, there are lots of different things to consider. Just wanted to take a brief break from my interview with Dr. Cohort to talk about a product that I've been using in recent months. It's a dice tray from the good folks at woodcraftbyus.com. Woodcraft by Us is a company that's run by one of my fellow gamers, Kevin and his father, and they have been handcrafting dice trays for tabletop role-playing games, which they've been selling Uh, locally here at farmer's markets and kind of blowing up the local farmer's market uh, scene with their dice trays and some of the other wood products that they sell. They use um, handcrafted materials with exotic hardwoods like Purple Heart and Black Walnut. And these dice trays have a top channel that's a great place to set dice that are not in play. Uh, These things look great. They're sturdy. Uh, They are really a wonderful addition to any table, and I've been happily rolling on them for past months in my Tomb of Annihilation campaign. 
The bottom has a layer of cork to minimize dice bounce and can be topped with a felt color of your choice. So you can do some mixing and matching of the different options on their website, which again is woodcraftbyus.com. Roll better, crit more, and visit them at woodcraftbyus.com. Well, one of the other recent things that we talked about um, ahead of time that seems to be something that's become much more prominent over the last few years is the whole loot box thing, which Mm -hmm. I think, again, is maybe one of the darker spaces of of gaming that's become more of a topic of conversation, and rightfully so, certainly. Yeah. Um, What have you noticed from your perspective, like doing research in this area Mm -hmm. and being an advocate and what do you make of this? I guess it's fair to call it a trend in game design where it's almost like any game now has some type of loot box feature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, loot boxes um, are clearly in the game as a, as a source of revenue. Um, The way I feel about loot boxes is that, People in the gaming industry probably need to take a stand about how they're using loot boxes and how they're being regulated before um, outside forces take a stand. As we're seeing in, in Europe, they are starting to outlaw loot boxes. They're starting to categorize them as gambling. Um, I'm very much on the fence that I don't believe they're gambling because you always get something. And with gambling, you have the ability to lose something. Um, whereas in loot boxes, you always get something, even though if it's not what you want. Um, so I see a lot of this discussion about is it gambling, is it not, from a technical standpoint. It's technically not, uh, as far as I'm concerned. But that doesn't mean that it can be regulated more, like reporting what the drop rates are for certain items or in some way to make it a little more transparent what it is that people are getting into. Um, a lot of the concern is also that they're marketed to children, but you know, the average gamer is an adult. So I feel like that sometimes gets lost in the mix. The average gamer is 30 years old. Yeah. I saw Um, that in one of your studies that I was reading that that's, yeah, (laughs) I just read that statistic today. Yeah. So there you go. So, I mean, they say loot boxes are geared towards children because, you know, confetti pops and it's brightly colored and this and that. And, and, you know, that might be true in some sense and they're fun and whatever. But again, the average person purchasing them and to purchase them, you have to have a credit card. So again, you have to be an adult or you have to be a child who has access to a parent's credit card. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot to unpack in that discussion. But I would say the main issues here are, is it gambling or not? Some some regulatory bodies have said yes. Some are still debating it. Um, and what restrictions should be placed on them? For instance, do you need to be 18 years old or older to purchase them? Which, again, I feel like you already are because you have to have access to a credit card. But, yeah, I'm not sure where that, where that discussion is going to go really here in North America. Yeah. Well, what do you see as your your challenges as the research director for Take This? Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, like, what is what's a typical day or a typical week in your role with them, and what is helping that cause? What's getting in the way of it? Yeah, I mean, um, my role in Take This is always about being an advocate and um, bringing information from the scientific community to a more generalized audience. That is always my goal. Um, so, um, my day to day is applying for grant money, uh, if I'm totally honest and, um, 
having meetings about different ways in which we can engage with the gaming community, talking about different topics that are of interest to the gaming community and the gaming industry. For instance, this month, we co-hosted a conference in Toronto. It was the first international summit on games and mental health. Um, at this summit, we met with different people from the industry. We met with content creators. Um, we met with academics and game designers about the different ways in which mental health is impacting workers in the gaming industry, is being portrayed in games, and the ways in which games can impact players' mental health. Those were kind of the three big topics. Okay. Um, so that was pretty exciting. So going back to it's about advocating and producing information. So that meeting was about talking about these issues. And then we have produced a white paper earlier this year that kind of outlines the state of the research in relation to these three big avenues. So moving forward as the research director, I hope to do more in-depth research in these different areas of interest. So what would be a example of if you had the finances to work on, a perfect study to answer some of these questions, how would you go about doing that? Like what would be the design for that study? Um, I have one that I am itching to do. Actually, I have two that I'm itching to do. Um, one is about um, IGD, Internet Gaming Disorder. Um, I would like to follow a large group of individuals, adults, since adults are the average game player, over time and look at the impact of gameplay on well-being outcomes. So the article that was just published um, from the Oxford Institute this week looked at Internet Gaming Disorder among adolescents, and they found that frustrations with their day-to-day -day is what drove their their dysregulated behavior um, and well-being outcomes far more than playing the games themselves. Um, but they didn't really measure anxiety or depression or an exacerbation of things like ADHD. Um, they just kind of had overall, like, how are you performing? How are you feeling measures? Um, so I would like to dig deeper uh, into the, into the nuance of that. And again, a longitudinal study isn't perfect. I feel like you can gain a lot more insight from that than a cross-sectional study. So following the same people over time right. versus looking at a single sample at a single point in time. Um, but that takes money. So that's what <laughs> yes. it takes money. But the answers are, you know, often more insightful. So that's what I would do if I had the money. Okay. Where do you think this conversation goes? As technology continues to advance, uh, you know, you mentioned VR. I mean, that technology is going in that direction. Some would say fast, some would say slowly, but I think it's definitely coming. It's, yeah. it's already happening now, but it's just going to yeah. get more refined and accessible to everyone. Yeah. Like, and just where do you think this goes? I mean, I know where I would like it to go or where I kind of see it going. Um, I would like the conversation to pivot more towards seeing games as potential tools um, for promoting well-being, promoting learning, being integrated into our daily lives in a positive way. Um, there's a great quote from Jimmy Ivory from Virginia Tech. He says, to say someone plays games is like saying somebody wears shoes. Like, Games are everywhere. Everyone is playing them. And the moral panic dialogue is not is not being very helpful. Um, so <laughs> what I would like to see is more attention being placed on 
how games can be great activities for children to learn persistence or to practice their leadership skills or whatever it might be, and then move along. <laughs> and, you know, let's talk about other things that are more of an, of an ale on our society. I mean, I don't want to say what I think those are because that's a conversation for a different podcast, but you know what I mean. Well, it could be this one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to get into that. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it comes it comes back to this idea of what what's the function yeah. of any behavior. I mean, I, I, I yeah. do that so much in, in my clinical work. Yeah. Could be games, could be some other type of hobby, even your even like work or a relationship. Like, what what is the function of this thing you're doing? What are the potential benefits? What are the potential consequences? I think for all of us to be able to monitor that, to be mindful of it. And certainly as a parent, that seems to be something with, with children to be plugged into. And gaming is just one of those things. Exactly. And we don't always, I don't think we can always explicitly understand what the function is for us. And we're not always so self-aware. But I think that even recognizing that the function has the capability of being something positive uh, would be nice to see in just kind of the public discourse. I'm actually, I'm publishing a book with Palgrave in January called video games and wellbeing. Okay. And it's a series of essays um, from academics and from clinicians talking about the ways in which games quote unquote unintentionally promote various facets of well-being. So through leveling up, we're practicing things like persistence. Through some of the narratives, we're seeing um, characters foster resilience. And there's all these positive outcomes that can come from playing games, learning a growth mindset, all of these things. And they, and they, and nobody talks about them. I mean, I feel like they just get dismissed. And if they could at least get equal weight in the discourse, I feel like that would be that would be a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, and one, as you're talking, one of the things that comes to my mind is, I mean, it's not a video game, but a lot of folks that I've interviewed for this podcast are, do like the tabletop role-playing games. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you talked about a moral panic. I mean, back in the 80s, Dungeons & Dragons was on 60 Minutes, and it was like these kids are being led to Satan worship and this is a bad right. game and we need to be worried about this. Does this cause violent behavior and all this? It's like, no, it's some kids hanging out at a table, rolling dice and making up a story. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think now with like other video games, there's this whole dynamic that we haven't spoke, spoken about of esports. Mm-hmm. People who are their career is playing games, or their they want to be a career video game player. So they're cultivating an audience on Twitch and social media. Mm -hmm. They're playing in tournaments. They're maybe travel if the very popular ones are making millions of dollars and traveling around yeah. the world. And it's it's this whole source of revenue mm -hmm. for these folks, and they're playing games more hours the day than anybody. And I'm sure some of them have mental health issues because human suffering is ubiquitous, <laughs> right? Regardless of profession, uh, correct. But there's this whole thing where I think even some college colleges are having esports teams, and yeah. high schools are considering that, and like that's merging with the same time of like this video game addiction diagnosis. It it just seems incongruent. 
Yeah. With yeah. With some of the trends out there. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on the whole esports aspect of? Gaming? Yeah. It's totally different aspect. I mean, I think that esports has done a lot to quote unquote legitimize games as a as a hobby. Um, I don't remember what it was. Was it a? Oh, I don't really. You can tell I'm sleep deprived, and I have two children. There was a recent tournament, and there was an esports tournament, and the, the kid won. And I feel like he was 14 or 15 years old, and his parents were there in the audience, like dancing and cheering him on. And it's like, okay, so we have that on the one end, and then on the other end, it's like the Dungeons and Dragons moral panic, like games are evil. And it is perfectly summarized by you as incongruent. Um, I hope that the popularization of esports is going to help change the narrative. So people can start to see that games serve more functions than just quote unquote, socially isolating my child in the basement, which they don't do, but that's the stereotype. Um, <laughs> just to be clear, more, more research that has shown that's not the case. <laughs> that's not the case. Um, so, yeah, I think esports e is really fun to watch, and it's people can make careers out of it. People can get scholarships from it. And also, like you said about Twitch, um, people are getting careers now just being, you know, streamers of playing video games at not even necessarily an esports professional level um, just because they have an interesting personality and people like to watch them play games. So games are really becoming transmedia, right? They're crossing different borders and um, – becoming integrated in all different kinds of media and all aspects and careers and college scholarships. That's great. I wish I could have got a college scholarship for like World of Warcraft rating. Yeah. What, maybe. What would have been your game? You got a scholarship in oh, over time. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm more of a role player. I was really a Final Fantasy kind of gal. That's not so much. Maybe Blitzball in Final Fantasy 10. Blitzball was awesome. I've talked about Blitz that a lot. That was Final Blitzball Fantasy 10. Final Fantasy X and Final Fantasy VIII, the card game, were the best mini games in all the Final Fantasies, for sure. Yeah, so fun. I, I think I can't imagine how many hours I spent playing Blitzball. Oh, so many. Yeah, that was but, a lot of fun. <laughs> but exactly. See, it was a lot of fun. And can't I just, why is that seen as like, oh, I spent a lot of hours playing Blitzball as being less valuable than, oh, think of all the hours I spent playing Parcheesi or, you know, some kind of offline game? Equivalent. Well, it, I've made this point before, I think, with another guest on our podcast. Again, I use, it's anecdotal, but I think this is a trend of youth sports where I have my nephews and they're like in travel baseball. And mm -hmm. it's like they have so many practices and they're young. They're like 10, 11, 12 years old. And they'll have games like an hour and a half away at 830 at night on a weeknight. And right. It's like the parents are driving and like if you're not doing it, then you're missing out. And it's this whole subculture of, well, we we got to we got to keep up with all the other athletes because maybe this will be their thing. Maybe maybe they'll be the next great athlete that will get a scholarship. And so there's all this time, effort, energy and resources funneled in to youth sports, which certainly has some positives. I don't think anyone would mm -hmm. argue that. No. At the same time, I think there's some negatives that we should probably talk about as a society that is this a good thing? Uh, right. You know, I, I don't know. What are your. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I live in Ottawa, so hockey is a big thing. I'm Minnesota, and, so I was thinking of hockey. There too, you go. go hockey yes. is a big thing. I knew I heard that accent. Um, so, yeah, so that is such a great point. And I think that this goes back again to just the moral panic argument. You know, the moral panic 
people talk a lot about Dungeons and Dragons and video games, but you know, there was a moral panic about crossword puzzles back in the day because people were very afraid it was going to make us literate and that would be terrible. Right. And then you have Elvis's hips are going to just destroy people forever. Um, so and they all these were things, right. they, they were, they were, <laughs> um, and all of these things get totally blown out of proportion, but I feel like eventually they turn around. Now crossword puzzles are seen as a great is a great brain training exercise, a great way to learn vocabulary. Dungeons and Dragons is starting to turn around as well as being seen as something that can be used therapeutically. You know, the folks that like Game to Grow and the Bodana Group, their charities organized completely around it. So I hope that, you know, that's why I think esports is a good way of kind of legitimizing games as an activity. I hate even saying that. Um, but it should not be seen as any different, you know, as traveling around and spending lots of money on like hockey or baseball. All that costs lots of money um, versus your child practicing their, you know, League of, League of Legends skills. Yeah, well, it's almost like a badge of honor where it's like, yeah, you know, I, I had to wake up at three and drive the kids to hockey right. practice because there's no ice time. And it's like, OK, that could be good um yeah it's strange it's just cultural. it's and just yeah. allocating allocating time to something again just be aware of like why am i doing this what am i expecting to get out of it what am i getting out of it what's its function what's its function and if there's a discrepancy there it's interfering in other things right then then it's time to sit back and look at what is its function what is the problem how can we how can we solve it absolutely absolutely and i definitely think that's something that most mental health providers could assist you with. I don't think it necessarily needs to be somebody who specializes in gaming addiction. Or residential care. Right. And if, I mean, probably meeting with someone who's at least familiar with games, knows some terminology about it, or is willing to learn, that mm -hmm. that's helpful. Um, and again, not to hammer on this article again, but it's just fresh in my mind where mm -hmm. it seemed like that was one of the messages of... You know, mm -hmm. games might be problematic and because they're problematic, we there's a dearth of people who can help individuals who are struggling with games. And I, I don't believe that to be the case. Right. And, and it's not. And, you know, um, there's geek therapy um, is coming to be more and more popular. And actually, um, there's a geek therapy network that just got APA accreditation to do courses to help therapists become more culturally competent and things like geeks and gamer therapy, um, things about comic books and video games and all of that stuff. So if you feel like somebody, you, you are somebody, or if you know somebody who may be using games in a problematic way and you want to seek help, it's absolutely possible to find individuals who are aware of what video games are. You're not going to go and sit down and be like, oh, those those old machines, those are the devil's work. You know, there are definitely people out there who are competent enough to understand the roles that it might play, the functions that it might be serving in an individual's life. And likely your therapist is playing Candy Crush or something in between like breaks. And <laughs> these folks are probably aware of some of, some of the similar pushes and pulls of mm -hmm. the motivations for gaming. Yeah. Right. Because it, it can be, I mean, you've described it at times as a, kind of self-medication or, or comfort. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, yeah, it can be satisfying. There's interesting stories, graphics. There's any number of elements that are enjoyable for a game. Mm-hmm. Be aware of those. And if, if you're playing a game too long and it's 
like your spouse or you're not talking to your kids because of that, well, yes, that, that could be an issue. <laughs> well, you know, and I am, I actually, I, my husband doesn't play this game anymore, but my husband was playing a mobile game. I, I won't say the name. Um, and he was playing it a lot, a lot. And it was incredibly irritating. And it did get to a point where I was like, look, you're just going to have to stop playing it or stop playing it when you're around me. Um, I've heard that from I my mean, wife at times. <laughs> I mean, no so, yeah, there is no, yeah. It was For me, it was Hearthstone. Oh, it was not hard, though, but it game. was yeah. it was equally uh, alluring. Um, I mean, from an outside source, after reading, you know, some of these articles, would somebody say he's addicted? Maybe, but he, you know, he stopped playing at least around me. Like, <laughs> get out of here with that. <laughs> so, what is you mentioned this uh, next book that you have coming out early next year? Yeah. So, what is that called, and what can can you kind of go through a synopsis of that briefly? Yeah, sure. So just going to pull up a little information Excellent. here. Excellent. It's late. Um, so it is called Video Games and Wellbeing, Press Start, and it is from Palgrave. And it takes information from different areas of interest, media studies, education, psychology, communication science, and looks at how games um, can teach us skills associated with happiness and long-term life satisfaction. So the list of things is um, openness to experience, self-care, growth mindset, solution-focused thinking, mindfulness, persistence, self-discovery, and resilience. Um, and it's written by a whole host of wonderful people. Dr. B, the clinical director of Take This, wrote a chapter. Um, the guys at Game to Grow wrote a little blurb uh, for the inside of the book. So I'm really excited about it. My my hope for this book is that it starts to change the narrative. And I think that's even the dedication I put in the book um, away from how are games hurting us and towards how can games possibly be helpful to us. Yeah. Which sounds hopeful <laughs> it is it is definitely a message of hope and you know having read all the chapters since i edited the book um, i read them all several times um the messages are hopeful and i think it's just nice to take a step back and be like oh yeah so when i was trying to kill the lionel in breath of the wild and it was incredibly frustrating for me really <laughs> i was practicing how to like sit with the sense of frustration and persevere through disappointment and these different elements that you don't necessarily think about but you are unintentionally learning and practicing um just by playing breath of the wild yeah is there a game that over your history as a gamer kind of stands out as a good example of that combination of mental health and gaming whether the way you used it or the message in the game um so for me, I, I'm I'm gonna have to go with one that I haven't actually played but okay. know a lot about because I was just as I mentioned at the conference in Toronto and they talked a lot about Hellblade, okay, and Sacrifice, um, and they actually consulted with psychiatrists and other outside sources to provide a game that was true to the experience of people suffering from the symptoms associated with schizophrenia, and it was from what I could tell, a very moving experience to have a game developed in a way that that presents mental health in a non-stereotyped, non-stigmatized way. And it's also helpful in the sense that 
it's not that, oh, this person has a mental illness and, oh, this person is a problem. It's just like this is a person and this is part of who the person is. Um, and it's just part of their uh, experience. Have you played Hellblade? I have not. No. I have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to now. Not that I have time because I have two small children. But, um, yeah, there was a whole lecture about it from Professor Paul Fletcher. He's from Cambridge. And um, it was very intriguing and hopeful and, and interesting because we talked a lot about how mental illness is often portrayed in stereotype ways. Like um, you wake up in a psychiatric hospital, that's never good, right? It's like shorthand for be scared, something's wrong with you. Yeah. Um, so it was nice to kind of see the, the opposite of that. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. You, you mentioned, I'd like to play more games. I, time is a factor. Time is a factor. I played Stardew Valley. I feel pretty good that I have like one current game under my belt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's about it. I started that game and then it, it got too repetitive for me. It, it is repetitive. Yeah. I think because of time, it's like, well, I always think of that time factor. If I'm doing X, then I can't do Y. I know, and I got grants to write and books to edit. and I mean, I'm a role player. I want yeah. to play the games that take 200 hours to play. Right. Like, I started playing Octopath Traveler on my Switch, which yeah. it's kind of a Final Fantasy-like game, but the only way I can play it is while I'm on the treadmill. So right. then I'm, like, An playing a day. Switch on the treadmill, and it's like, well, I made a little bit of progress, but it's not like yeah. back in the day where I could devote more time to it. Right. And, you know, that's maybe something to consider that those younger might have more time to play games where, I mean, if you assess me back in like high school and college, I probably met some criteria for, oh, for problematic Oh, I met all of it games. easily, easily. So when I was doing my master's degree and I decided to get into research, part of the reason wasn't just I kept hearing the same question is because I kept hearing the same question and I thought, oh my gosh, is something wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Why are all these people concerned that games are creating their children, making their children de- you know, socially inept and isolated? Is that what it's doing to me? I didn't think I had a problem, but now I think I do because people keep telling me there's something wrong with me. But, you know, I had a master's degree. I graduated with a very high GPA. I got into a PhD program. Like, clearly I was still functioning. Right. Or at least pretending, faking it enough to get by. <laughs> Enough to graduate. That's, so yeah, that's that. how it was, yeah. <laughs> so I felt I was like, okay, I guess, I guess I'm legit now. I can start working. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. If if folks have questions about take this or some of the research you're talking about here, or interested in your in your books or just you know ideas, how can they reach you on the social medias? Yeah, so um, um, the social medias, I am on Twitter at Dr. Cowart, it's D-R-K-O-W-E-R-T, and you can learn more about Take This at takethis.org, and they're great, so please check them out. And do you have any conventions or appearances coming up in the future? Um, Not in the, well, I will be at PAX South and PAX East. Okay. So... One is in January, one is in March, and I will be at GDC. So I'm everywhere. Wow, if yeah. you're at, at a PAX or GDC, you can you can find me. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for talking about this subject. It seems like we're both quite passionate about it. And, yeah. you know, for the folks listening out there, I, I hope if you're a video game defender or someone who's skeptical about them, uh, be willing to look at things from that middle ground, like we've been talking about here. And, you know, yeah. You know, just, again, have some awareness about the function of these games. And it's not all 100% bad. 
It's likely not 100% all good either. Right. Somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so, wonderful. Well, good luck with all of your work, and it'd be great to talk again in the future as you have new projects and stuff coming out. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Sure. Take care. You too. Thank you.